we have these crossroads. And you know, either way you choose, your life is going to be different. The universe doesn't exist, but God thinks it does. We have to stop consuming our culture. We have to create culture. Stupidity has a definite evolutionary function. I am all for abolishing stupidity, but before it goes, we should pay tribute to it. All right. Hello. Welcome to Nonsense Bazaar. I'm Sequoia Kennedy. And I'm Willow Truman. I'm fucking disgusted with all of you. What? I, no. I was I was planning on writing, you know, as a palate cleanser, last week's travesty of an episode. You're getting vampires, but you all loved it. <laughs> they did. I don't fucking they ate get, it they, up. They don't say that. That's disgusting. Yeah. No, they did, though. We should have been tarred and feathered for it, but instead you gobbled it up. Anyway, <laughs> gobbled, gobble, gobble. <sighs> anyway, for the hopefully great silent majority, this week you're getting spooky. We're talking vampires. Got to give them the Halloween episode weeks late. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But not your, uh, not your normal vampires. Not your counts and thinly veiled fears of the meat grinder me- mechanisms underlying capitalism. I think they're sexy. They are. Yeah. There's yeah. But that's not the vampires we're talking about. Okay. We're talking the New England vampire panic, which realistically lasted for like the entirety of the 1800s. We've talked a lot about the 1800s. There's so many times. Oh, yeah. How many times have we visited the burned over district? Like a handful. Which is a lot. It is. (laughs) Relatively speaking. But like, you know who hasn't shown up in any of our talk about the 1800s? Fucking rural New England. Where we're from. Why? Because it's creepy as fuck and these gooners would just get digging up the graves of their deceased loved ones, lighting their hearts on fire, and smoking fucking ashes. Why were they doing this? Vampires. Goddamn vampires. Like, I, were they really smoking ashes? Uh, yeah. That's- Or drinking tinctures of the ashes. That yeah. is hardcore. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Dude, it, yeah. kind of cool, actually. It's fucking nuts, dude. It's so, like, rural New England in the 1800s was real dark. It was real dark beforehand, too. I mean, Jesus Christ. The witch trials and all this shit. Right? Oh, yeah. Right? Like, New England's dark as fuck, dude. But I gotta confess, I love a vampire. Because you are one. <laughs> I wrote that, too. Ah. <laughs> I wrote, I, I'm one of those fucking people. I mean, shit, I'm tall, thin, pale, up all night, and a drain on anyone and everyone around me. <laughs> you know? <laughs> of course I'm a fan of the vampire. My longest serving and best uh, D&D character is a half-vampire hard-ass. The greatest fuck-up of my life, misreading signals from a woman, involved thinking, watching Queen of the Damned way too late at night meant she actually wanted to watch Queen of the Damned at 3 a.m. <laughs> Vampires. They're great. Entirely different type we're talking about today, though. They don't. Have, these vampires don't have castles and land and fancy fucking garages and chandeliers and shit. No, they're the living dead remains of your children, your siblings, your spouse, your parents, who climb out of their graves to stalk and slowly pull the remainder of your family back down into the earth with them. Well, that's rude. Yeah. Because you're dead doesn't mean I have to be. Honestly, it's a horrifying idea. And like all the way into the... 1880s, the people of rural New England, and very especially Rhode Island, were shit terrified of vampires. With good reason. But yeah, for real, it was mostly my home state of Rhode Island. Like, there was, it was like 90% of the New England vampires came out of Rhode Island. And in case you didn't know, like, we're, we're very small. 
It's kind of the thing you're known. It's really small. A lot of vampire. It takes like less than an hour to drive across the state the long way. It actually takes longer to drive across the state the short way, but that's because of a clusterfuck of bridges and a completely inept and nepotism-drenched civil engineering system, but that's an entirely different podcast. Yeah, the infrastructure is fucked. It's so bad. But there's a reason. There's a damn reason H.P. Lovecraft came out of Rhode Island. This shit is spook central, and the grim, dark nightmare vibe of the New England vampire panic is a great illustration of that. So that's what we're talking about today. Ooh, I like it. Yeah, I do too. I mean, this is like one of those classic, like... When we first started this podcast, like everyone I know was like, oh, you should do the Mercy Brown story. Mm-hmm. Like, Rhode Islanders love any excuse to be proud or prideful people, you know? But yeah, but before we get into it, let's do what we do pull a tarot card. Yes. Princess of Cups. Okay. <laughs> I don't know what to make of that. Also known as the Page of Cups in mm-hmm. other decks. We'll, uh, we'll talk about that at the end. Okay. I don't know if we've it's ever got playful. Gotten... It is playful. I like <laughs> it. It's dreamy. It's, uh, I, you know, Cups is always delusional. Like, that, it can always represent delusions and illusions, fantasies. The princess is, the princess or page is the ones that, like, use the ace. It's the... The force that actively takes and uses the potentiality represented by the aces. Mm. We'll see what the fuck it means at the end. I, yeah. The I'm, earthy part of water. There's something there. It's a beautiful card. It is a beautiful card, but it can be delusional. Oh, yeah. Yeah. All right. We'll talk about that at the end of the episode. Now, the only vampire themed song I know is fucking Jason Isbell's If We Were Vampires, but that's not really about vampires. It's just about making you fucking cry, so I'm not going to do that. Yeah, no Jason Isbell (laughs) podcast. It's not. It's not our vibe here. No, no, no. That's our vibe late at night. Yeah, where we want to fucking cry about something. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good song for that, but I'll, I'll figure out something else. There ain't no grave can hold my body down. There ain't no grave can hold my body down When I hear that trumpet sound I'm gonna rise right out of the ground Ain't no grave can hold my body down Well, look way down the river And what do you think I see? I see a band of angels And they're coming after me Ain't no grave can hold my body down There ain't no grave can hold my body down All right, so Roger Williams, the founder of Rhode Island, kind of a bad motherfucker. He was banished from Massachusetts Bay Colony for advocating ideas like the separation of church and state and religious freedom. Williams took his radical notions and founded... The state of Rhode Island and Providence Plantations, essentially laying the groundwork for the First Amendment long before it became a constitutional reality. Rhode Island attracted not just Baptists like himself, but also other dissenting religious voices, Quakers, who were considered radical heretics by some and were persecuted in Massachusetts. Found a How dare they? What, persecute the The Quakers? I know, yeah. They're How dare they? They're pretty innocuous. Ooh, Massachusetts was hardcore, dude. Mm-hmm. They didn't they didn't suffer nobody who wasn't a Puritan. 
Well, they found a welcoming haven. Uh, Jews, which were a rarity in the New World at the time, also found a modicum of peace in Rhode Island. The place became a giant melting pot of uh, 17th century religious radicals. Yeah. Yeah. It's also very small because Roger Williams also, so the story goes, purchased the land fair and square from the Narragansett tribe. Mm-hmm. And didn't, like, try any shady shit to, like, expand the borders. Now, you know, that would... Rhode Island has a pretty fucking dog shit track record of treating the native population, but not during Roger Williams' time. He's an all right guy. I'd like to talk about him more at one point. I like that guy. Like yeah. I said, Rhode Islanders will take any fucking opportunity to be proud of their state. To be proud of anything from Rhode yeah, Island. it's true. Really. It's pathological, honestly. Like, you gotta have something. I know. But when it comes to supernatural folklore, Rhode Island is fucking tiny, but it's the spookiest place on the planet. Like... The Ramtail Factory in Foster is illustrative example, which uh, I talked about in one of our Halloween specials. But the story is that Peleg Walker, a former miller at the factory, hung himself in the bell tower and the lanterns in the woods and this phantom bell towers ringing. It's recorded in the Rhode Island in the 1880 census in Rhode Island as being officially haunted. Now, that was also just tax evasion, which is another very Rhode Island thing. <laughs> but... <laughs> That's what it was. Yeah. Yeah. Unlike Massachusetts, Rhode Island um, didn't hang any witches. Massachusetts hung 19. Pressed another to death during the Salem witch trials. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, which would you rather? Hanging or pressing? Hanging. Yeah. Holy shit, dude. Pressed to death? Mm-hmm. Fuck that. That's like the worst. I'm done. I'm not. I'm not about it. I'm with you there. Hell no. Yeah. Do you yeah. think there was only one because they did it and they were like, ooh, that was really messy. Let's not do that again. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that was that was fucked that, for us. Yeah. No, I dude, I recently found uh, found out that my a family uh, of my ancestors were basically all tried and convicted as witches in Salem, including like one like my 11th great grandfather, who was like one of the few dudes who was tried and convicted. And uh, his mother, my oh no, he was my 10th great grandfather. My 11th great-grandmother was the last person uh, exonerated, like, like, a couple years ago. They, they pardoned her. <laughs> Literally a couple years ago. She was the last person, last Salem witch pardoned was my, like, 10th great-grandmother or something. It's fucking ridiculous. No wonder you have a persecution complex. I know. Yeah, it's, we've, we've mentioned this before. Yes. <laughs> I'm a fucking vampire, too. What are you going to do? It's what fine. are you going to do? What are you going to do? <sighs> but yeah, Rhode Island... Didn't persecute any. There, there were no witch trials in Rhode Island. There was witch trials in Connecticut. There was witch trials in Massachusetts. Everywhere around there. So it was safe to be a Jew and a witch in Rhode Island. Relatively, relative. Is it ever you, safe? No. Anytime you talk about like any sort of freedom or liberation in throughout all human history, you do need to add the word relatively to yeah. the front of it. You know, like yeah, there was like suspected cases of witchcraft and shit uh there was rumors and but there was no legal action there was no salem panic or executions despite coroner's jury suggesting that uh, rebecca cornell of portsmouth was murdered through witchcrafty means the law was ambivalent partly because rhode island's governance was rooted in religious freedom and a separation of church and state that didn't allow for religious witch hunts also, how do you prove that in a court of law? Well, I mean, look at Massachusetts. They didn't give a fuck. Uh, yeah, I guess so. The spectral evidence, dude. That, yeah. That's wild. Like, Ugh. 
the history of of our legal insurance yeah, yeah, yeah. systems like in there's a legal precedence for shit like this apparently it's all make-believe dude it's you can twist whatever anything, yeah but yeah basically Rhode Island's a really interesting petri dish where religious freedom folklore and skepticism all lived side by side each shaping how the other evolved and out of that you know you get shit like hp lovecraft who didn't just put Rhode Island like he isn't just like the most famous author from Rhode Island he also made Rhode Island a character and this part of the world a character. Born and raised in Providence, H.P. Lovecraft saw more than the Ocean State's Gilded Age architecture and cobblestone streets. He saw, same thing that I do, a landscape teeming with horrors from other dimensions. For Lovecraft, Rhode Island was ground zero for cosmic horror. And Lovecraft's geographical palette extends far beyond Providence, incorporating the other areas of Rhode Island into the eldritch mythos. Locations uh, turn into fictional towns rife with sinister under undertones like Arkham, which he invented, inspired by several real-life locales, including portions of Rhode Island, including portions of my hometown and the towns south of it. And in Lovecraft's hands, these woods aren't just places, they're repositories of arcane secrets, guarded by locals who know far more than they should about the terrors lurking in the dark. In Lovecraft's stories, Rhode Island is not merely a setting, it's an active participant in the narrative, a silent witness to events that could tear the veil between dimensions. I like that. Yeah. You know, it's like how... The whole Amityville horror thing, the house is really the main character. Exactly, exactly. Like, the setting is is what matters. Without the setting, none of the ghosts, none of the Jody, the the pig, or whatever even matters. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's very much the case in Lovecraft's works. I'd, I'd like to do a, an episode or two on H.P. Lovecraft himself um, in the nearest future, because... Because it's a long time coming. It's a long, yeah, because it <laughs> needs to be done, you know, and his it, complicated guy, bit of a bastard. I like his writing. I know it's some really people. scary. It's fucking terrifying. <laughs> yeah, dude. It's, and it's, uh, again, something to be, is it, you know, are we, are, are sword allergies just compensating? Do, Maybe we, a little we, bit. You've got like the biggest Napoleon complex of any state. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I fucking love my state. Seriously, I love this stupid place so goddamn much. It's just so spooky. Love like this. It's not like Lovecraft just made this shit up either. Like mm-hmm. it had basis, and again, one of the bases for Lovecraft's um, view of Rhode Island was the vampires. And the concept of vampiric entities can be traced back thousands of years across various civilizations. Ancient Greeks had stories of demonic entities known as Lamia, who would suck the blood of young men. Romans had the Strigas, bird-like creatures that would consume human flesh and blood. The Egyptian Book of the Dead, they talk about dangerous spirits that could drain the life force from the living. It's not, they were around long before the uh, Transylvanian variety of vampires. Yeah. It's a global phenomenon that taps into deeply ingrained fears about death and the unknown. But Eastern Europe is perhaps the most famous for its vampire folklore, the regions of Romania and Transylvania. In these regions, vampire-like entities such as the Strigoi and Nosferatu became culturally significant figures representing evil and death. These creatures were more than bedtime stories. They were often blamed for real-life events like plagues or the mysterious deaths of livestock or people. Almost like um, Mothman. Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. And, but in early folklore, vampires are often described as bloated, dark-skinned revenants, not the, you know, romantic figures portrayed in right. novels. These early conceptions were more grotesque, bloated corpses rising from their graves rather than debonair counts and capes. The Slavic and Eastern European cultures had particularly vivid vampire traditions, with the undead often seen as revenants who return due to improper burial rites or sinful behavior in life. 
And these vampires were closely associated with disease and death, often seen as harbingers of plague or other disasters. But then, around 19th century, 1800s, the image of the vampire took a ridiculous kind of turn. You know. You know what they are now. That's what they became. They That's went from why they're these, sexy. Yeah. They went from these just like bloated, shambling corpses, like basically zombies or like ghouls or something. More like a ghoul in like modern fantasy game. Now they're sparkling. Now they're sparkling, dude. Uh, works like John Polidori's The Vampire and Bram Stoker's Dracula began to portray vampires as sophisticated yet predatory aristocrats. The new breed of vampires was seductive, powerful, and malevolent, an archetype that has largely persisted in subsequent literature and films. Now, have you ever read Dracula? Nope. Dude, it's sick. It's it's kind of fucking badass. I uh, I'm a big I'm a big fan of Dracula. I highly recommend it. Mm. Yeah, like it's terrifying. It's legit. It's what it, happens? What happens? Fucking Dracula happens. They gotta save this. They gotta save this girl from the Dracula. They got the Van Helsing. There's fucking there's Renfield, the crazy little fuck. I don't know. It's wild. It's it's Dracula story. I can't I can't retell. Dracula. I don't know any of it. That's ridiculous. I know. You would like it, though. I, I recommend it. probably would. It. Yeah. But the vampire has become a staple in Western pop culture. I mean, we all know that. Fucking Twilight and shit, you know? Yes. Yeah. Moved from folklore and literature into film, television, video games. And this transition created greater flexibility in the portrayal of vampires, from the monstrous to the romantic, which, again, reflected evolving social norms and fears. The bloodsucker seems to be a thing that persists in culture. Like across history, and the aesthetics around it kind of changed to reflect the time, mm-hmm. right? Even at this, like as Dracula was being as Polidori's the Vampire was published, there was still in rural New England their own fucked up brand, breed of vampire, which departs significantly from the European models. They're not lurking in castles or flying around as bats. No, they're dead family members who died often of tuberculosis, and they're suspected of returning from the grave to drain the life out of their kin. Hmm. It's a very, but it's different from a ghost. Yes, it is the body. It is the corpse is getting up and standing on your bed and sucking your life from you, your dead sister, shit like that. Like why for? So you die too? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so then what do they do with the life when they suck it up? What do you mean? I don't know. I'm assuming if you're draining <laughs> somebody's life, that you would be at least gaining some of the life. Uh, yeah, yeah, probably. Like, I think it's just like. Kept, you know, it's keeping them sustained animated. in a suspended, yeah, animation. Yeah, keeping so their bodies from decomposing. And get all the family members. I don't know. Yeah, basically, or that's I just how know. they feed. You know, I think it doesn't have to make a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. I want it to though. I don't know if they really fleshed out the lore. It just makes sense to me that if if you're draining life from somebody, that it would be giving you life, but it's not. They're still dead. Like there's now they're both dead. Well, maybe it's just like the life force that like. I get it. You I'm know, overthinking it. it. It keeps them from decomposing, keeps the ravages of time at bay. I get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, it's a very domestic and tragic version of vampirism. More about, you know, what disease does than yeah, like seductive dealing with, immortality. Dealing with loss. Yeah, yeah. It does. Grief. It's a very physicalized, and we'll see exactly how physicalized, you know, the it's, it's still the thing that killed your fucking family hanging around mm-hmm. and pulling you in, you know? And it was tuberculosis. That's what it was. It was just tuberculosis. During the 19th century tuberculosis epidemic, so-called vampires were often exhumed and subjected to various rituals to stop the disease from spreading among surviving family members. And it's it's a fairly pragmatic 
folklore. They were trying to root out this evil and stop it from claiming any more victims. And there's interesting ways in which they like almost got to like immunology. Yeah. Through the vampire rights and shit. Like the concept of, well, we'll, we'll get to it. But yeah, really, it was just to wash your hands. Yeah, it was really just myths, you know, born out of the grim realities of a community grappling with a poorly understood, deadly and fucking terrifying disease. Not the allure of eternal life or the thrill of the hunt. It's about survival and uh, the unknown coming out to pull you under. But I don't know. Taking aside, I think it's interesting how we got from ghoul vampires to aristocratic vampires yeah like the really scary undead yeah to like you said this alluring immortal i don't know thing that um a lot of people kind of probably find really appealing and and sexy yeah 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 oh you're oh you're just 25 forever yeah like yeah yeah yeah. well yeah i mean so they yeah it's it's funny because both versions of the vampire i don't know they're they're two different ways of dealing with the same fear. Yeah, <laughs> you know. But I think it's also two different dangers that they're. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. One is um like romanticizing it and ignoring death and like I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the other one is um like being terrified of it. Death as as an agent itself. Yeah. Trying to trying to get you. Yeah. So the like the vampire journey starts with. The initial understandings of vampires as corpulent corpses rising from the dead, pissed off and causing all sorts of community-wide problems. Blamed for plagues, failed crops, even stillbirths, you name it. The vampire was the ancient world scapegoat. No mystique, no charm, just a bloated revenant causing a ruckus. Yes, the undead versus the immortal, Yeah, basically. Then, the 19th century. And with it, a whole bunch of societal shifts. A rise in literacy rates. The popularization of the printing press and the growth of the middle class changed the way people consumed stories. Okay, this actually makes sense to me uh-huh. because, like, also this version of um, these these ghouls, these undead things. Yeah, that's like kind of before you could record things and have an archive of people as well as you do now, or in the nineteenth century. You could still commune with your loved one past their death if you could afford a gravesite, maybe. But you could also maybe have a photograph of them or right. some sort of, I don't know, mementos of them. Yeah, yeah. That you might not have available in prior centuries. Yeah, would yeah, yeah. Affect yeah. the way that you deal with grief. I'm. So, this is a very amorphous thought that I'm trying to put together succinctly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I got you. Yeah, the. The technology available in the 19th century altered the way that we grieve and process loss as well, because there was less things that we had to lose once we gained the ability to record more. 100%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. And, and also, I mean... The idea even, of immortalizing things through technology. Or through things, even. I mean, you're or also looking things. at the rise of, like, this is where consumer culture starts, mm-hmm. starts as well, right? Like, there's more objects to have. Right? Like more mementos of the dead to have. Precisely. Yeah. And, you know, and there's also like the rise of the novel as a way of telling stories, you know, with intricate plots and shit. And the first like vampire novel was John Polidori's The Vampire in 1819. And here the vampire is introduced as Lord Ruthven, an aristocratic British gentleman with a taste for the high life and human blood, which is a totally complete, complete 180 from 
previous vampires. Well, yeah. Now um, the vampire is almost like a symbol of corporatism or something. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, you know, this is the eight, 1819. This is the start of the Industrial Revolution. The, the new plague. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's fucking, I mean, I mean, you think about it, like, you know, this dude, Lord Ruthven, was a smooth, seductive, moved in high social circles. He died. He wasn't a, a gross creature you'd chase out of the town with pitchforks, but like he's the guy hosting the dinner party, right? And like this is when shit. This is when the fucking industrialists were literally drinking blood, or metaphorically drinking blood. Yeah. Right. Like you've got these tragic fucking factory accidents. You've got people. I mean, before the fucking fight, like forty-hour work week, giving their There's entire a lot of blood sacrifice going on. Straight up. You got shit like the child um, sacrifice, even. Yeah, straight up. You got shit like the um the fucking triangle uh fire, the triangle factory fire. Mm-hmm. Horrifying. Like, and that's just like yeah, blood spilled at the fucking feet of wealthy industrialists and aristocracy. That's because also you're getting medicine, you're getting you know all the shit that could previously treat or that could treat the things that vampires were previously blamed for. Mm-hmm. Now it's your boss, right? The rich fuckers in the carriage. That are draining your life from you. Yeah. Yeah. And in uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula in 1897, it doubled down on the vampire's newfound sex appeal and social standing. Count Dracula is an old world aristocrat, but he's smooth. He's a smooth motherfucker. Yeah. He's charming as hell. He owns real estate. He navigates social settings. Uh, he's going to, he's, he's, he's Mr. Worldwide. Yes. You know? And Dracula solidified the vampire's reputation as a cultured worldly figure. Is both dangerous and irresistibly intriguing, just like rich fuckers are. And then this trend snowballed throughout the 20th century. Vampires appear in Hollywood films, TV shows, comic books, each adaptation offering its own spin, but maintaining that blend of allure and danger. Bella Lugosi's sensual Dracula, Anne Rice's mortally conflicted Lestat. Uh, then, the, then there was Carmilla. Who's Car- where's Carmilla from? Carmilla is a 1872 uh, Irish vampire work about a lesbian vampire. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. <laughs> That's the one I'm familiar with. 1872 lesbian vampire? Yeah. Fuck yeah. <laughs> it's not so much about vampires turning into the bourgeois, but it's more about society's shifting anxieties and desires mm-hmm. is what you see in the vampire myth. They went from being representations of localized fears, disease, death, crop failure, to embodying the more modern existential concerns like immortality, eternal youth, the moral ambiguity of human existence. How come all these rich people live longer than us? It's a good question, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Vampires are a complex, uh, they're a tapestry of our collective psyche. And they're entertaining as hell. But the old school vampires were the ones you didn't want to meet in a poorly lit alley or even a well-lit one. They're usually not of noble sort. Again, it was just your your dad, you know? Just common folks returning from the dead with a thirst for blood. And it perpetuated a narrative that even in death, the common people, commoners can return to burden and suck the life out of the living. You know what's interesting, too? Just thinking about Carmilla and the time that it came out, the 1870s. Yeah. Just like in our Taxil episode, how there were those student revolutions in both 1860 and then 1960. Yeah, the same yeah, thing yeah. kind of happened with sexual revolutions. True. Where around like the 1870s, you start to see this this free love, um, this idea of a a sexual revolution is happening in the Victorian times. Yeah, so yeah. So it makes sense that the vampire then would become uh, like a queer vampire. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I definitely. don't know. That's just a... 
definitely. A little link that my mind made. Well, and yeah, if you think about a vampire, the bloodsucker representing societal fears. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's when, like, you know, women's rights were really popping off. There's just people were talking about sex more freely. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. For, like, the first time. So Carmilla had a lot of erotic overtones of, like, her sneaking into women's bedrooms at night and whispering in their ears, like, you're mine. We will become one. Holy shit. And instead of turning into a, a dog like Dracula does, she turns into a cat. Mm. So it's, like, this feminine version of the vampire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then from there it comes, you'll find this queer horror trope of lesbian vampire movies. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, gay vampire, like that's- Yeah, gay vampires too. Yeah. Yeah, vampires are just everyone everyone's afraid of. Everything yes. everyone's afraid of. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, the blue-blooded vampires became a metaphor for the societal unease around old money and inherited power structures, right? Like, as people are getting more literate, they realize who's actually doing the blood sucking. You know, they're- just like the Blue Bloods, they're beings who live for centuries, amassing wealth and influence while the rest of humanity toils in obscurity. <laughs> like economic systems that benefit the few at the expense of the many, elite vampires are both awe-inspiring and horrifying. But you also oh. kind of want to be like them. Yeah. It's kind of aspirational. Yeah, you you want to be the sexy, do. immortal You're tempted by it. Yeah. That lives in the castle forever yeah. and travels around assuming different identities. Yeah. You're Nicolas Cage. Dude, that's why not to go on a fucking tangent, but that's why my... My D and D fucking vampire is the coolest dude ever. Yes, he's just he was a inquisitor for the lawful good human crusader goddess, and he just killed undead. I basically made Blade without seeing. Yes, yeah, is is essentially what I did. Uh, he also had a had a two inside baseball, but he had a a trait that made it so I could use his wisdom score for his uh, conversation skills, like diplomacy and intimidate and all that instead of his charisma so he just had super low charisma he was just the most off-putting man in the world but he spoke with the voice of god and could just nail any diplomacy checks it's fucking sick kick down doors and put people to the sword the right type of vampire <laughs> yeah i love that guy <laughs> the essence of the vampire myth is consistent they're entities that feed off the vulnerabilities of society bodying our deepest fears and most complex anxieties stale as old as time but even after the vampire had transformed into the sexy aristocrat, yeah, Rhode Island was still in the fucking dark ages. Like <laughs> Western Rhode Island was still in the dark ages. Uh, Exeter, Rhode Island, in the year 1883, was a testament to the transformative scars left by the Civil War. It's a once vibrant community, but it saw many of its young men, those fortunate fortunate enough to escape the war's clutches. Depart in search of a brighter, more prosperous future. So here's getting the, the fuck out of here. Here's the thing about Rhode Island. Rocky. The soil is rocky as fuck. Mm -hmm. It's kind of really hard to grow shit. Like, it, it's not the fertile Midwest, you know? No. Like, there's farms and shit, but, like, it's it's a bitch uh, to grow shit in Rhode Island, in New England in general. So this, like, Exeter had a mass exodus of people, and it got a pretty fucking sad uh nickname of for a town deserted exeter <laughs> yeah and like man exeter even there's like a purgatory road there's a hell road like there's all these like real fucked imagine up imagine living on hell road i'm pretty sure there's like a hanged man's road and shit it's excellent it's wicked odd dude it's it's creepy as shit but yeah it's, they lost a ton of their population after the after the civil war and like the people that were left behind were just stubborn fucking swamp Yankees, dude. Like the Brown family. 
The Brown family patriarch, George T. Brown, alongside his devoted wife, Mary Eliza, well, they had dreams for their three children. Mary Alice, Edwin, and Mercy Lena. Mercy Lena? Mercy Lena Brown. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Well, yeah, none of those dreams would come to pass. It, it all went to shit. A relentless and mysterious ailment claimed Mary Eliza in December 1883. So mom's gone in December. Okay, tragically sad. Yep. And then seven months later, Mary Olive got got no. by the ailment. Yep. And then before long, uh, little Edwin started getting sick too. My God. Oh, yeah. Now, we know people of the 1880s weren't stupid, so I want to point out that the gap between the deaths, right? Like, these people knew that disease existed, mm-hmm. right? But tuberculosis is slow. It's real slow. Like, logic would suggest that if there wasn't anyone around who was sick, how could it be disease? Right. Right? Now, desperation and hope often walk hand in hand, and in a bid to reclaim their son from the jaws of this ailment, the Browns sent young Edwin to Colorado Springs, as you did. Like with the con- when you had the consumption, right? The city nestled at the foot of the Rockies had earned a reputation for its good air. Go get them some good air. What about some magic water? Maybe got them some magic water. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but while it's a nice view, it's a good place to hang out. Didn't do shit for young Edwin, so. Uh, at least it was pretty. Yeah, and so he came back and back in Exeter in January, Mercy Lena got sick and died. Who could have seen that coming? Right. Not me. So Edwin gets shipped back there, and uh, the cold, frozen ground of January in Rhode Island meant that um, proper burial had to wait. So instead, they kept young Mercy, I believe she was 19, in an above-ground crypt all winter. Just dead daughter in the front yard in a crypt. You know? Every day. They're looking at it. Yeah. Unavoidable. Real fucking dark. God. Like, yeah, Mercy's silent presence, a constant somber reminder of the tragedies that Edwin and George were just, and soon to be just George, <laughs> left with. Poor George. Yeah. Village doctor had a theory of what was going on. Oh. He said it was vampires. <laughs> well. Yeah, he, he said that, listen, one of your dead family might not be entirely at rest. Instead, might be... Sucking the life force from the main ones, which you got to do. All the people around George were like, dude, they got fucking vampires at the Browns' house. They got to do something about that. With Edwin's health waning, murmurs and whispers turned the gaze of suspicion upon the recently departed Mercy Lena Brown. Uh, it's just because she's above ground. Yeah. That's the only reason. Probably. <laughs> yeah. Just... You would think it'd be the mom. Yeah. Right. She's been dead the longest, right? Exactly. Yeah. How is it the one that just died that's sucking the life force out of everyone? You I know? don't know. I don't yeah. know. Well, maybe she was having premarital sex and she was evil and it was the sins that did it. Obviously. Yeah. Well, George Brown knew it wasn't fucking vampires. <laughs> he, he knew. He like he George Good Brown man. totally understood what was happening. He knew it was tuberculosis. He knew it was consumption. But all his neighbors were like, dude, your daughter's a vampire. Please let us take a look at her corpse. So he relented, basically, to soothe the fears of his neighbors. Mm-hmm. So you knew that, like, the community would be better off if they got to do the vampire thing. Yeah. Yeah. So they took a look at uh, Mercy's body. Two months after Mercy's death in March 1892, community members exhumed the remains of the Brown family to inspect them for signs of vampirism. The remains of Mary Eliza and Mary Olive exhibited normal decomposition, which is real gross, I imagine. 
Uh, yeah. Yeah. Mercy, however, appeared conspicuously well-preserved. It's almost like she died in the middle of winter when it was really cold. When it was, when it was too cold to dig a grave. Yeah. It's almost like that. <laughs> it's almost like cold makes you decompose <laughs> more slowly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's true. That's why you put meat in a freezer. It's yeah. Just, yeah. Her heart still contained blood, and her corpse seemed to have shifted within the coffin. Moved, it's moving around and shit. Now, this could be attributed to natural decomposition processes exacerbated by winter conditions, but for the people of Exeter, it was vampires. Proof positive that it was vampires. So, uh, they exhumed her corpse, they cut out her heart, burned the heart, and the ashes, seen as both a curative and a ward against further malevolence, were mixed into a tonic and given to young Edwin. And... I hope he didn't know. Yeah, uh, despite this foolproof plan, uh, Edwin's health spiraled further, and he soon joined his family in eternal rest. My God. <laughs> and George was left alone. Yeah, I really hope he didn't know. Yeah. Because, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I can't imagine, like, not only would this not really act as, as medicine on an internal yeah. level, yeah. but it feels like the opposite of spiritual medicine. To, like, desecrate the corpse right. of your yes. dead sister. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, burn her heart. Yeah. And then consume it. Yeah, dude. It, it, that doesn't feel like it would do anything kind for your soul. No, not at all. Sounds like it would make life suck more. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If any, that sounds like a potion of, I don't know, evil. Yeah. It's a real brutal <laughs> and, like, fucking... Death. Uh, it's, it's a, it's brutal. But the tale of the Browns, tinged with sorrow, mystery, and supernatural, caught the imagination of the whole world. Because the rest of the... This was 1883. Real late in the game to be burning hearts and drinking the ashes. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like... It's a long time ago for us now, sure, but, like, this is 20 years after the Civil fucking War. You know what I mean? Right. Like, the Theosophical Society exists. You know, like, this is, it's fucking modern ass It's like some times. ritual magic shit. Yeah, it's like... Like, we're burning hearts and making a potion to drink in order to, to ward off evil spirits. Yeah, dude, it's some deep woods fucking savagery. Yeah. You know, like, the people in the rest of the country, even in fucking Providence and shit, were like, what the fuck are they doing out there? And even, like, people moving from Rhode Island to Connecticut were seen as, like, uneducated. Like, they were seen like we see people from Connecticut now. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> fucking ghouls and mutants and uh, hills have eyes shit. Mm-hmm. We're a proud people. We're also a very prejudiced people. Rhode Islanders. <laughs> you know, I think Connecticut encapsulates both of the types of vampires. It's true. Yes. Yes, it definitely does. Yeah. But yeah, newspapers fucking took this took up the story, turning the narrative into a blend of fact and folklore. You know, there's like people say that Mercy Brown uh, inspired Dra had something to do with Dracula, something to do with the inspiration of Dracula. Um other people took and ran with it. A lot of people looked at took it as like yo, people in rural Rhode Island are fucking savages. <laughs> like what the fuck are they doing? It was like some real tabloid shit. It uh -huh. wasn't like, oh my god, there's vampires in Rhode Island. It's like, these vampires are these fucked. Yeah. Yeah. But Mercy Brown's final resting place in Chestnut Hill Cemetery remains a site of intrigue. You know, it's a spooky tourist tourist stop. All right. Uh, Mercy Brown was the instant inspiration for Caitlin R. Kiernan's short story, So Runs the World Away, which makes explicit reference to the affair. It's also been suggested by scholars that Bram Stoker, author of the novel Dracula, knew about the Mercy Brown case through newspapers and articles based on the novel's character and based the novel's char character, Lucy, on Mercy Brown. It's also referenced in H.P. Lovecraft's The Shunned House, 
Marcy Brown's story was the inspiration for the young adult novel Mercy, The Last New England Vampire by Sarah L. Thompson. An account of the events as told by the remaining descendants of Mercy is available in Michael E. Bell's Food for the, Food for the Dead on the Trail of New England's Vampires. I wonder what the shunned house is about. Don't go there. <laughs> <laughs> but there was a lot more fucking vampires than just Mercy Brown. She was just the last. Um, there was Sarah, Sarah Tillinghast, also of Exeter. That's another vampire. After following her death, her family faced a wave of illnesses, claiming several si- siblings. Suspicions mounted. Sarah's grave was disturbed, revealing a body that seemed untouched by time. Took her heart. Burned it. Nancy Young, another Rhode Island native, met a fate eerily similar to Mercy, posthumously. Dying in 1827, whispers of her preying on her living kin led to her heart being consumed by fire. Nellie Vaughn, a young girl buried in West Greenwich, earned his undeserved reputation as a vampire. Connecticut also had a bunch of vampires, including Connecticut right around here, too. Like, this is... These stories are from fucking right here, which is wild. Griswold, Connecticut. Children in, in 1990, Griswold, Connecticut, children playing in a gravel pit unearthed human skulls. <laughs> wow. It's fun. Just good. Kids used to be kids, you know, playing in gravel pits unearthing skulls. Mm-hmm. And this led to the discovery of an old, old farm burial ground that belonged to the Walton family. Most of the skeletons were unremarkable, but one was in a coffin marked uh, JB55 in tacks on the lid, lids of the coffin. In 2019, forensic evidence and genealogy revealed that he was John Baker, who died in 1826 at the age of 55. Initially, police thought that this feller's remains were the work of a serial killer, who had apparently been active in the area. I had no idea of any of this. Don't like it. <laughs> but John Boy, John Baker's uh, bones were found with his thighs crossed under his skull, like the Jolly Roger, like the pirate flag, uh-huh. skull and crossbones. Oh. It's to stop the vampire ass from walking around. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah, he just he makes put his head sitting on his thigh bone so he can't walk around. There you go. Yeah. A little more elegant than burning the heart and shit. Mm-hmm. Just like pranking him. Yeah. I yeah, gotcha. Try to walk now. <laughs> but then there was the Jewett family of Jewett City, Connecticut. Uh-huh. Yeah. Just north of Griswold. Following a series of deaths, the town's fear led to the exhumation of bodies and the burning of organs in a bid to tie, in a bid to stem the tide of death. There's been exhumed graves in the area that show skeletons buried with a sickle blade across their throats. Like, try to get up now, bitch. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's just some shit they did. But where it got really crazy was up in Vermont. This is this shit get wild. Cora Lee, Cora Lee's death marked the start of her family's decline in health. In their desperation, they pointed fingers at Cora's spirit, leading to yet another heartburning ritual. Another Vermont family, the Rays, facing, faced a string of tuberculosis deaths. Frederick Ray, one of the sons, bore the brunt of suspicion. His resting place was violated, heart burned, and his ashes taken as a remedy. Why? It doesn't work, guys. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but Vermont's trysts with the uh, supernatural and the undead were... In, in Rhode Island and the other states, kind of the, the heart burning thing was uh, done pretty much in private. Yeah. Um, Vermont, it was like a public fucking gathering. Oh, boy. It was a good time. Yeah. They were communal events. When someone was suspected of being a vampire, it wasn't just the immediate family involved in the exhumation. The whole town gathered, creating an almost carnival-like atmosphere. How awful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just how terrible. Truly, yeah. Now, here's the saga of the demon vampire of Manchester, Vermont, 1792. Judge uh, John S. Pettibone wrote about the early history of Manchester in a manuscript from around 1860 and included a section titled Tale of the Demon Vampire. 
Pettibone told of Rachel Burton, the first wife of Captain Isaac Burton, who died in 1790 and is buried in Factory Point Cemetery in Manchester. According to Pettibone's account, she was a fine, healthy, beautiful girl. But not long after marrying Captain Burton, the 20-year-old went, 20-year-old's health went into decline. Her health declined over a year. She died, and Captain Burton remarried, and his second wife, Holda Powell, became ill under similar circumstances. Uh, according to Pettibone, A strange infatuation took possession of the minds of the connections and friends of the family. They were induced to believe that if the vitals of the first wife could be consumed by being burned in a charcoal fire, it would affect a cure of the sick second wife. <laughs> Whoa, will you eat the corpse of my <laughs> first wife? Yeah, 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 yeah. I think that'll make you better. Why would that make her better? Like, that bitch died. I don't know. But the townspeople disinterred Rachel Burton, and uh, Pettibone wrote... They took out the liver, heart, and lungs, what remained of them, and burned them to ashes on the blacksmith's forge of Jacob Mead. Ch shall I go on? Yes, please. Timothy Mead officiated at the altar and the sacrifice to the demon vampire, who it was believed was still sucking the blood of the then-living wife of Captain Burton. It was the month of February and good slaying. Such was the excitement that from 500 to 1,000 people were... <laughs> <laughs> Good slaying, you said. <laughs> Good slaying, brother. Yeah. They're coming in with their fucking jingle bells. Jingling. To see the fucking... <laughs> wow. Just the torching. I mean, it, this is... And let me guess. Did, did she survive? No, she died. Yeah. Yeah. She she does, she definitely died. She died in 1793. Uh, similar stories took place throughout New England, too. Um, according to a October 2012 article by Abigail Tucker in Smithsonian Magazine... Uh, some communities in Maine and Plymouth, Massachusetts opted to simply flip the exhumed vampire face down in the grave and leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. In, in Connecticut, Rhode Island, and Vermont, though, they frequently burned the dead person's heart, sometimes inhaling the smoke as a cure. Then no. That's yeah. not for you either. One vampire heart was reportedly torched on the Woodstock, Vermont town green in 1830. Wow. Yeah. But these rituals did have a have a purpose they were an attempt to protect the living in a communal catharsis they were a way for the town to confront and collectively exercise its fears because like you kind of need something like that because other right. like even if it's a like i mean at least they're doing it to the already dead exactly right and like even if you're gonna lose it's still more enjoyable it's it's more satisfying to go down fighting i think <laughs> yes at least that's how i usually feel but with each burning, the townspeople hoped not just to rid themselves of one vampire, but to push back against the tide of death and disease that seemed to just be taken Everybody. wife after wife after wife. Yes. Yeah. Um, another another supposed Rhode Island vampire from West Greenwich, Nellie Vaughn, got similar treatment to Mercy Brown. Her fucking gravestone, ominous as fuck, her gravestone inscription reads, I am waiting and watching for you. Yes. I am waiting and watching for you. Wow. It's extremely hard-boiled. Like, but there were reports of barren soil around her grave, adding to the mythos of the of Nellie Vaughn. One of the ways that you could tell if a deceased loved one was in fact a vampire was through the foliage around there. If a uh, a vine growing from a grave was an indication of vampire activity. Oh. Yeah. And back in the day when gravestones were set up before a person actually died, you could tell who was going to get got by the vampire next by which gravestone the vine grew towards, which already picked out plot for the family member. 
Ooh. Isn't that fucked up? They used to do that. Yeah. Like that's just so macabre, right? Just preparing for death. Yeah. Oh, oh, we got another kid. Better. Like you're next. Better pick out another spot in the family plot. Yeah. It's wild and like oh, it's, so here's another fucking thing in in Rhode, Rhode Island has the most uh, per capita landmass covered by graveyards in the, in the country. Mm. There's like a ridiculous amount of uh, cemeteries in Rhode Island, and they're huge. It's a lot of the Catholic shit, right? Like that. That's a big. Big part Catholics love their fucking cemeteries. And all throughout the woods around here, like you can just be walking in the middle of the damn woods and just find an old uh, family plot, graveyards and shit. It's wild. They still get like maintained and like cleaned up. And so like even if there's no paths going to them, like someone will go there, clean it up. And like, you know, there's like a little like, oh, preservation society. Like, there's like, how the fuck did you find this? You know? Yeah. Um, But they're like, there's literally just so many given road around here. You will drive past, I don't know, at least there's, there's at least one every fucking mile, just a tiny little graveyard right off the side of the road. It's weird. Mm-hmm. And so like death was a very, very present, just you're not escaping it. It was just always fucking there. But yeah, you could tell who was going to get got by the vampire next by which gravestone the vine would grow, grow towards, <laughs> allegedly. But I, else, I would hate that if it's like growing towards yours. I know. There's you can train vines too. You'd be out there in the middle of the night, like trying to coax it away. Oh yeah. <laughs> but also, it kind of sounds like send pe- it towards grandpa. Yeah. These <laughs> <laughs> had is fun. It also just kind of sounds like people were just fucking dying, though. You know. Uh yeah. Yeah yeah yeah. But in all these stories, the common denominator, denominator, the common denominator, is tuberculosis, the consumption which cast a long shadow over New England. In the 19th century, New England was hit really hard by tuberculosis. The consumption. Yeah. It was consuming everything. Yeah. And also, it's called consumption because the disease seemed to consume individuals from the inside out. Gross. Yep. Basically, your lungs melt. Really gross. Yeah. Victims became gaunt. Their skin turned ghostly pale. Eyes reddened and bulged as if from some inner torment. And the relentless hacking cough bore the foreboding of a death knell. Oh, so let's burn those lungs and then drink. Yeah, 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 yeah. Modern science identifies tuberculosis as an airborne contagion. It's a bacteria that goes from host to host, especially Okay, so they're burning a bunch of infected corpses and inhaling the smoke? Essentially, yes. That can't be good. No. If anything, it's doing the opposite of what they're wanting. Most likely. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't even put that together, but yeah. That's absolutely what's going on. (laughs) Yikes. Yep. In the 1800s, the modus operandi of the consumption, it was still an enigma. It insidiously threaded its way through households, and once it staked its claim on one family member, a domino effect often ensued. One after another after another. And from this observation, they got the hypothesis that perhaps the first victim was returning from the grave's depths, drawing the life force from their still living relatives. There we go. Yeah. Which makes, it does make sense to me, you know? I can understand why they would reach that conclusion. Yeah. Makes more sense than Mercy being the one doing it. No, definitely. Yeah, it is totally true. The first person. I think she was just the easiest. Well, well, she was the preserved one. Yeah. Yeah. That's why they thought it was her. And like, also, the Mercy Brown shit happened after... Like, after the fucking, after there was treatments for tuberculosis, like, it was under, like, it was real late in the game for both getting got by tuberculosis that bad and also believing in vampires. Mm-hmm. 
And tuberculosis was also kind to consider. It was, it was a bit sexy. Oh, yeah. Ebola-chan wasn't the first, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Won't be the last. No, definitely not. Tuberculosis symptoms exacerbated traits that were, at the time, considered desirable. Rosy cheeks, pale skin, real thin, gaunt face. Yeah. An 1830 medical book even goes so far as to equate consumption with vampirism. Okay. Consumption like the vampire, while it drinks up the vital stream, fans with it the hopes that flutter in the hectic breast. Whoa. The transparent colors that flit on the features, like those of the rainbow on the cloud, are equally evanescent and leave its darkness more deeply shaded. So, identifying a vampire, when you dug up the, the corpse, you might find that the interred body defied the natural progression of decay. But also, you would find, perhaps, blood on the lips, right? Mysteriously preserved body with blood on the lips. It's a fucking bloodsucker. Or if it had liquid blood in its heart, where to get that? It shouldn't have that. Discovering a corpse in an unexpected position, like on its side or stomach, or noting what appeared to be post-mortem hair or nail growth, were also seen as unsettling indicators of vampirism. And the discovery of any, of any of these indicators meant immediate action. The heart was the center of life, and believed to be, like, you know, where the life force lived, the core, the soul, you know? And, like, anthropologists and folklorists uh, do say that, like, these rituals, while they might seem just, like, really ignorant, they hint at an early, albeit misinformed, grasp of contagion, you know? Even, like, drinking the ashes could be seen as That's where inoculation. I the page of cups comes in, right? Because he's holding the cup. Right? Yeah. And it's almost like you could see um, the water in this card yeah. almost as, like, a reflection. Yeah. And what's reflected in it is the emotions of the time because, again, we're in the water suit. Mm -hmm. And it's it's honestly pretty fucking sad. Yeah. Like, Wicked. <laughs> the way that these people were trying to deal with the immense amount of loss and grief happening around them. Yep. Is like, wow. Delusional. Like, yes. Yeah. Yeah, no, yeah, literally. Yeah. Very delusional and, and emotional way of dealing with it. It's yep. like we're literally going to drink the hearts of our loved ones in hopes that somehow that it fortifies us. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yikes. The um It's it'd be so easy to like make fun of these people too. Oh, you shouldn't though. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Cuz it's actually like damn. That's a bit that's a bit sad. It's wicked sad. <laughs> that, <laughs> Dude. It's horrifying. Yeah. Like it's uh yeah, they 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 the rituals they had to deal with these were they used the fragments of knowledge available. They saw death as an active contagious entity. Their responses, while giant dwarfs were born from a mix of love, fear, and an overwhelming desire to wrest control from the clutches of the unknown. The vampire panics of New England are a reminder of humanity's eternal battle against the unseen, the inexplicable, and the inexorable march of disease and death. And it's spooky as fuck. And it's literally, like, Exeter, Rhode Island, literally has a road named fucking, like, Purgatory and Hell and, like, yeah. Dead Man's fucking breakneck whatever the hell there's so many weird roads in, in Exeter it's very strange it's a really interesting way of interacting with the hard things of the time yeah I mean it, it's almost like like I think it's a way that humanity that humans just deal with the unknown like you they yeah. will do anything in their power to try and try and deal with it 
you know, I'm sure they weren't Even doing that. Even if it before. means looking at where the vines in the graveyard are, are growing towards just anything. Anything to keep that semblance of control. Right. Or the illusion of control. Yeah, over something that is so unknown. Yeah. Is, who is it coming for next? And, you know, that's a theme that, like, Lovecraft hits a lot in his stories. Just those, like, useless rituals of control. Right. And, and it's like, so fucking what if you know? Does that make it any better that right. you know who's exactly. going yeah, 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 exactly. There was a, like, I forget which case it was, but there was a, it was a foreign doctor who, who showed up and uh, stoked the fears of vampirism, mm-hmm. which is just funny. They just believed this European guy. Because there was a lot of, um, the, the way the vampire shit got to New England was probably through the Hessians who fought in the Revolutionary War. They weren't just Russian, they were Eastern European, broadly speaking, and then they Interesting. settled throughout yeah, New England a lot and brought with them all the folklore from the old country. Uh, and I, yeah, I, I believe like Exeter and shit had a lot of, a lot of them people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's, why did I say like a racist? <laughs> Whereas like, what's weird is there was no, um, no vampires in Foster, but also Foster wasn't, well, Foster was around, but that was weirdly all Norwegian immigrants. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I, I, yeah, it's just like a, it's kind of a goofy thing. Like, there were, like that's kind of how the New England vampire shit is usually portrayed. Yeah. You know, it's not, it's just really dark and really sad. And it paints a fucking image of, yeah, just a fucking spooky ass swamp woods mm-hmm. where people are just kind of dying and it's damp as fuck, right? It's the right, um, climate for tuberculosis to thrive these people were poor as shit they didn't have even though the medicine existed they didn't have access to it right right and vampires and just the concept of bloodsuckers is so interesting to me mm-hmm. especially like also and and how it kind of goes fucking full circle with like tuberculosis being like being considered sexy yeah <laughs> like um i know you haven't seen tombstone the western I have not. It's fucking sick. I've seen the pizza. Not as good. Yeah. Is it based on the movie? No. Okay. No relation. No, Tombstone's about fucking um, Wyatt Earp and Doc Holliday and shit. It's sick. Val Kilmer plays Doc Holliday, who was a real dude. Actually, he might need an episode on his ass. He was a dentist, which back in the day, man, he was a sick fuck. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) He was also a gambler and the like best uh, gunslinger in history. But he has tuberculosis, and he's the sexy guy in the in the movie. Val Kilmer is, even though he's just like profusely sweating all the time and just like pale as shit. Oh, baby, he's got he's got the consumption. He's a lunger, yeah, as they say. Tu- uh, tuberculosis has also always scared the shit out of me. It's just a, slow diseases I don't like. Yeah, that shit sucks. That's just no good. Yeah, but yeah, I I think the Princess of Cups does speak to that the whole thing about the illusion of control. Mm-hmm. The ritual, the fantasy aspect, the Princess of Cubs isn't a very active card. She doesn't have a lot of agency. Right. Right. It's not like the Princess of Wands or uh, Swords. Mm-hmm. She is essentially passive and essentially living in a dream world, which can be really nice sometimes, but also it can be a constructed fantasy. That's the only way you can make sense of the brutal and shitty reality around you yep yep so that was revenge for the um for the for the cum episode (laughs) (laughs) i think you got 
it's pretty good revenge. Yeah, I also, we've been like super busy with shit. I needed to just do a very basic mm-hmm. episode. But that's all I got. I, I thought there was going to be like more narrative about Mercy Brown, but there's really not. It's just, yeah, I guess not. It's, it's just a family that died. You know what I mean? Like at the end of the day, like all these cases are just like. It's just a tragedy. Yeah. Yeah. It's just people died and they made up stories about why it happened. Yep. And did useless rituals to try and keep some control. Yeah. Over their lives. That is, that is it. Yep. We solved it. <laughs> My goodness. Uh, all right. I think that about does her. Um, I think so. But we do have a bonus show. We do. It's on our Patreon. It's called the Corkboard Bazaar. Also got a Discord. We do. That's also on our Patreon, which you can find at patreon.com slash the nonsense bazaar. Starting at just $5 a month, get access to our bonus series and our Discord. It's a lot of fun and you should do it. We also have a St. Germain emergency St. Germain reporting hotline, which I don't know if we've gotten any calls about that. I should check. I can't just like let that bit go to the wayside because I need to, we need to use that shit for something. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I have an idea of what to, what to use. Um, well, again, we've got, uh, some voicemails, but we can't play them. Yep. God damn it. Interesting though. Okay. Interesting. Well, what's fucked up is we are getting voicemails about our emergency St. Germain reporting hotline, but like a lot of them are as, uh, we're saying, uh, uh, Hey, don't, um, don't play this on air, which tells me that we needed an emergency St. Germain reporting hotline. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Well, if you see the bastard anywhere, you can call us at 774-495-0491 and tell us your story. Where'd you see him? What's he doing? What's he up to? That's 774-495-0491. Yeah. Apart from that, y'all take care of yourselves. Be well. Don't fucking burn hearts. Y'all take care out there. Peace.